Uh, today we're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26, and you may have noticed that um, the, some verses from this passage were sort of woven through this, the, the service already today, um, and I'm thankful for that. Um, in, in this portion of the book of John, Jesus is um, on this sort of long, this arduous journey toward his crucifixion. And what John is doing for us is recording in these passages, these conversations and situations where Jesus is preparing his closest disciples for this violent and tragic period, which is about to come upon them. He's, he's preparing them for life without his physical presence and the kind of life that they can expect as Jesus ascends to the Father. I think there's a lot in this passage that is very, very encouraging for Christians and always has been, but I also think there's a lot that's very challenging and difficult, especially for modern Christians when we come to this passage. Why do I think that? Well, I think today, I don't think today, I know today, <laughs> that many of us, many Christians, we tend to measure the validity of our faith uh, based on how we feel about things. Uh, we measure the validity of our faith based on our particular experience. And so if we feel inspired because of a beautiful song, uh, or if we feel inspired because of a wonderful sermon, or if we feel inspired by our um, unity with a particular group of people, and by the way, these are all things that I feel all the time. Okay? If we feel inspired by these things, and we more like regularly and consistently feel inspired by these things, you've probably heard this phrase, we'll say something like, boy, was the Spirit present there. Right? And we, and we measure the legitimacy of our faith based on how often and how much we feel the presence of the Spirit. There's only one problem with that, and that's that Jesus never talks about the Spirit that way. Jesus never talks about the Spirit of God in such a way as for us to believe that we will always continually feel inspired and feel good about our faith, and the more we feel good about it, uh, the more legitimate our faith is. Instead, Jesus says... And what he says in today's passage is, if you have the Spirit, you'll obey my commands. Yikes! That doesn't sound very spiritual. <laughs> it certainly doesn't feel like the Holy Spirit that we've come to know in popular Christian culture. But that is what Jesus says here today. He says, the clearest sign that a group of Christians really loves him will be that they follow his commands. And you still may not believe me, uh, but I think you're going to see it very plainly in this passage. For Jesus, love is a spirit-inspired action in accordance with the scriptures. Love is a spirit-inspired action in accordance with the scriptures, not merely a feeling that we might have. Okay? So I'm going to ask you to stand 
And we're going to be looking at John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26. If you're able, you can stand, and uh, I will read. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help today as we turn to your word. We pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, whom we just read about, we pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds, that we may be more and more conformed to your beautiful person. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is saying here in this passage, if you want to follow and show your love for God, you have to have two critical components in place. You have to have commitment to Jesus and his word, and you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to help you keep them. Those are the two things. The balance of this is we cannot hope to be faithful Christians without what we call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to help us to follow the word of Christ. You see the interplay, even in Jesus' words, you can't, you can't take one of these things out of the formula, and each of these things encourages the other thing. It's a, it's a circular kind of interplay that you cannot break. And so as we look at the passage today, I'm going to suggest you there's just two things that we have to be aware of. That the life of a Christian is characterized by obedience to the word of God. And secondly, the life of the Christian is characterized by reliance on the Holy Spirit. Okay? Life of a Christian is characterized by obedience to the word of God and reliance on the Holy Spirit. So, first of all, let's talk about obedience to the word of God. Everybody likes talking about obedience, right? Did you come to church today to hear how to be more obedient? Maybe some of you did. It's not the most exciting topic. 
Try having it with 15, 16, and 17-year-olds. Here in the passage, no offense, guys. Um, I have problems, too. You know that. You see my life, okay? Here in this passage, Jesus is addressing the reality that true love has consequences. True love has consequences. Real-world consequences. To truly love someone means, at its most basic level, that you will behave in a particular way toward them. And you will also behave in a particular way toward other people. True love means a behavioral change. It's, it's, it's crazy when you think about this passage, how blunt Jesus is. Right? There's no warm-up. There's no introduction like I gave. <laughs> There's no kind of slick slogan. Jesus just says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He's not really wooing us in this moment, right? And I think many of us, when we hear these words start to roll off of someone's lips, right? If you love me, right, our, our radar kind of goes off. Like, we're ready for something manipulative, right? If you love me, you'll get me a refill, you know? <laughs> if you love me, you'll go pick up the kids at, you know, wherever they are. If you love me, you'll go get the groceries out of the trunk, right? It can kind of be like that, sort of silly and manipulative. But it can also be very serious and manipulative. You can say, if you love me, you will stop this addictive behavior. All right. If you love me, you will earn more money. Yeah. If you love me, you will speak to me more or listen to me more. Right. So we, we recognize that this, this statement, no matter how it's made, will kind of put us on our heels when we get prepared because it means that I have to do something. If you love me, you will do something. And usually, because so many of us so seldom experience true love <laughs> regularly, we assume it's going to be manipulative and harmful to us. But Jesus is not manipulative and he is not trying to harm us. Instead, he's giving us a very important principle for what it means to be a Christian, and we can't just shrug it off. Now, if he had said this just one time in the passage, uh, you might think that I was isolating or eisegeting the passage. He doesn't say it one time. In, th in these 11 verses, he says it four times explicitly. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. What does Jesus want us to get? If we love him, we will keep his words, right? It's very clear. It's very blunt. The, the hard thing is, in actually doing it. Now the question is, which is harder, to love or to obey? Oh, your mind's going to explode. But hold on. Some of us may be saying, boy, this sounds pretty legalistic. <laughs> right, here, comes, here comes the legalism. But we know Jesus isn't legalistic. 
So we start to do these gymnastics, and some of us may just, on one end, oversimplify and say, all Jesus means is that we just have to love. All we have to do is assent to this loving nature of Christ, uh, and we will have accomplished this obedience. It means I never have to stand up for anyone that I love. It means I never have to stand up for a group of people that I love. It means I never have to do anything to express my love in space-time history for anyone or anything. I just have to assent to the feeling. We all know that 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 can't be true. Just can't be true. We can go to the other side of the spectrum, though, and we can say, all that matters is obedience. I just need need to learn the law of God. I need to be an expert in the law of God. I need to figure out every way to fulfill the law of God. And when I do it, then I will have succeeded. Well, we've all been under the cold discipline of an unloving person who is an expert in whatever law. And we know that that can't be love and obedience either. So if neither of these perspectives work, where do we turn? And I think what we have to recognize here is that Jesus is giving us a simple principle that translates into every human relationship. I want you to hear that. A simple principle that translates into every human relationship. Every human relationship requires a degree of exclusivity in order to express love. A degree of exclusivity in order to express love. And the degree to which that exclusivity is honored will show the degree to which the love exists. All right? Now, keep following me. Here is the analogy. When we marry, we are entering into an agreement that actually binds us. A marriage covenant binds us. And it doesn't just bind us physically. It it actually binds our minds. It binds our thoughts. You can't say to a future spouse, I'm going to marry you, but I want to be free to lust after others. I'll never do anything, but, you know, you've, you've, you've heard that saying, I'm not dead, you know. No, that's, that's not okay, right? When I enter into a marriage covenant, I, I'm agreeing to bind my thoughts. We're so in love that we want to be exclusive, okay? And so, I don't want to be with anyone else. My loved one doesn't want to be with anyone else. And because we feel equally exclusive about the other, we agree that we will swear to this thing. We will enumerate, and then we will codify, (laughs) right? And then we will swear to honor those things that we've enumerated and codified. And we will say, this is what it will mean to love each other. Now, For an example, my wife and I, when we were uh, engaged 23, no, 26 years ago, sorry, engagement versus anniversary, okay? That was hard, math. We're 25 years this year. 23 years ago, we got engaged, and when we were engaged, we decided 
that we would no longer engage in exclusive relationships with the opposite sex. I'm not saying that's right for everyone, but for us, that was right. We did not want to create a situation where there could be doubt for our love for one another. So she said, I'm not going to hang out with any guys. And I said, I'm not going to hang out with any girls. Uh, I had a number of female friendships at the time. Most of them got it. There were a few that didn't. And the pressure was immense, right? But it's me, Chris. I know it's you. That's actually part of the problem, right? You, you can't make an exception just in this one situation for me. We've been friends so long. You're a really wonderful person, but I have made this agreement with my fiance, and I can't do this. The, the pressure was incredible to cave in on this. Okay? Maybe some of you have found yourself in similar situations. What was I faced with? I was faced with a decision. Do I essentially break the exclusivity of the covenant that I established with this other person for the sake of saving face in these other relationships. Because what Alicia and I had done is we had established, we had enumerated, codified, and agreed to these principles, and these principles were to be the guiding path for how we would show love to one another. And I couldn't break those principles without dealing a significant blow <laughs> to that covenant we had established. In other words my love for Alicia would have come into question if I broke those commands, if you will. And similar for her. When I weighed the judgment and the condemnation from these other people, their word, <laughs> against the word that I had established in my covenant with my wife, uh, obviously, I chose wisely. But that is the question that Christians are faced with daily in our dealings. You can't say you love someone while behaving in a way that jeopardizes the covenant that you have with them. It's an important principle that we have to understand. So, one of the most important ways that spouses show love for one another is when they keep the stipulations of their marriage covenant. It's a very simple principle. And as I live out the basics of this covenant, I'm reminded of the exclusive love that binds it all up. And as I'm reminded of the exclusive love that binds it all up, I am encouraged to keep the stipulations. And Jesus says, Church, love me like that. Love me like that. Okay? So that's the, that's the first principle. The life of a Christian is characterized by this kind of obedience, covenantal obedience. The secondly, the life of a Christian is characterized by reliance on the Holy Spirit. Obedience is vital in human relationships. I think we've seen that. But human relationships are also the place where we realize that perfection is impossible. There's something about the addition of another mind and heart into my life, uh, into the equation of my life that can really mess things up. Has anyone had their life messed up by another mind and heart? Be honest now. Come on. Yes, you know you have. 
It's, it's not as great as you thought it was going to be. <laughs> okay? And as soon as we realize that, we realize this it, perfection is impossible in this relationship. And we get used to saying things like, oh, nobody's perfect, right? <laughs> nobody's perfect. And it's true. But we also realize that there are some aspects in human relationships where perfection is necessary. Perfection required. I can be, uh, I can be grumpy and distant occasionally in my marriage, but I can never strike my spouse. All right. I can be uh, aloof <laughs> uh, and ignorant at points in my marriage. But I can never ignore my spouse. Um, I, can, I can be wallowing in selfishness and self-hatred at points in my marriage, but I can never sleep with another woman. Perfection is required in these moments. We realize this. We wouldn't argue it. At work, you can be late or have poor performance standards, but you can't kick down your boss's door and throw his desk over and tell him what a jerk he is. You actually have to be perfect in that area, okay? Low bar. <laughs> Some of us have been at jobs we started off liking. Uh, we did our very best, and maybe we were very successful in that job, but at some point, the job becomes mundane, the people become annoying, the tasks become onerous, you try and try to develop some kind of joy in the job, and you realize that the problem is not the little tasks of the job, it's the whole job. I hate the job. Right? And you become kind of overwhelmed with this idea, I hate this job. You realize, if I'm going to stay in this job, I have to become a different person. <laughs> I don't just have to make the widget better, i got to learn to love the widget, Right? You realize that doing the tasks better will not make you love the job more. And so you're probably starting to see what's behind all this. If your relationship with Jesus has grown cold, trying to get better at his commands will not help you. You got to hear that. If your relationship with Jesus has grown cold, trying to keep his commands better will not help you. Even if you oversimplify and say, I just want to love, <laughs> it will not help you. And this is where it becomes evident that though in human relationships, perfection is required in some areas, with Jesus, perfection is not just impossible, but it is not required. Perfection is not required in our relationship with Christ. And that's the good news. It's central to the message of Christ and even his sending of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. You see, in life there are some things we have to do perfectly, but with Jesus, he offers the benefits of perfection before we are even willing to try and obey. We get the benefit of perfect rest for imperfect souls. That's what we get in Christ. There are some things, obviously, in life I I don't want to do to avoid negative consequences. (laughs) But with Jesus, perfection is never a requirement. So how do we live this way? What do we do to live this way? It's sort of a trick question, you know. (laughs) And this is where people have to understand that the Christian faith is not primarily a system of ethical standards, though ethical standards are very important to the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not primarily a set of doctrinal standards, although doctrinal standards are incredibly important to the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not primarily about emotions and our feelings, even though we have to have emotions and feelings in the Christian faith. The Christian faith is primarily and fundamentally a spiritual transformation of the whole person. An ongoing spiritual transformation of the whole person. And it's only possible through the work of whom? The Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is not active in a person, there will be no spiritual transformation. How do I know that Jesus cares about this? Because he says this over and over and over again in this passage as well. Verse 16, he says, I will give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 17, he calls him the spirit of truth. He says, you will know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. In verse 26, he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This spiritual transformation is a literal transformation of my being so that I may live more and more in obedience to the commands of Christ. That's the transformation that is happening in the life of a Christian. That is the ongoing, literal, spiritual transformation that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. Just as we all are part of a number of human relationships, we're required to change as those relationships develop. Real change. The the 10-year-old Chris Holdridge, son of Darlene, is no less a son of Darlene at 47 than I was back then. Am I the same person? Yes. Am I the same person? No. It takes a different Chris Holdridge to be the son to an elderly mother than it took to be the son of a middle-aged mother. And she was different too. How did that happen? A transformation took place. I've heard someone say in the past, uh, I was, I was, I've been married for 30 years, uh, and, and in that time, my wife has been married to four different men, and they were all me. 
<laughs> right? And you've probably had experiences like that. I'm, I'm not the same man that Alicia married. But I'm the same man Alicia married. How do we account for that? Literal, spiritual change. That's what we're talking about. The Spirit of God, too, and similarly, in our relationship with Jesus, is changing, refreshing, and renewing our hearts and our minds. And he does the same thing with respect to his law and his commands. He's always teaching us and showing us. And so here in these few verses, Jesus assigns the Holy Spirit with a handful of roles that the Spirit fulfills in the life of a Christian. And Jesus, in this moment, sums up all those roles with one word. Parakleton, the helper. You've probably heard this Greek term before, parakleton. You can even break it down in your mind. Para means uh, alongside. Kleton means helper. Okay, So this is the one who comes alongside the Christian in our lives. It's a word taken from the Greek legal system. So as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he instructs us and guides us in how to live the law of Christ. And when we inevitably daily fail at it, he is there to defend us and help us. He's an expert at understanding and applying the scriptures. <laughs> and he is there to teach us how to do it. But even Jesus' use of the term is much more realistic, or much more holistic. When Jesus applies this term, the helper, what he's capturing in that, or from that Greek legal system is this sort of like family lawyer who would be almost a tutor to the family. He'd be called in if there were problems. He was there to literally sometimes live with the family, to teach the family, to remind the family, to comfort the family with regard to their responsibilities in the culture that they were living in. All the while confirming the validity of God's word. That's the work of the Spirit. As regards our faith and life as individual Christians together in the church, Jesus and his Father send the saturating presence of the Spirit so that we will remember, learn, apply, and live and be comforted by the Scriptures as we live our lives as Christians. It's a very simple formula. There, there's no magic. Why do we need to hear the simplicity of this? Why does, why does this matter in the life of a Christian? This is critical. The answer to this question is critical. If you know anything about the Gospel of John, uh, John is constantly recording episodes from the life of Jesus where Jesus is pointing out the contrasts between his way and the way of the world. We learn in the Gospel of John that Jesus is asking us to walk out of darkness and into light. We learn that Jesus is asking us to drink true living water, not dirty, funky water from some old well. He's asking us to eat the bread of life, not the bread of lies. 
He's telling us that he's the true shepherd, not just a hired hand. He's constantly bringing these contrasts into play in the Gospel of John. And here again in this passage, he applies the language of contrast in verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The spirit of God fulfilling all these roles that he fulfills is there for us because we live in a world that hates Jesus and will reject him and will reject us as we try to live along with his word. This is the comfort for the church. We will never be alone. We have the spirit of God in us as we seek to live this life in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the contrast, in the midst of whatever persecution may be faced by the church, the gift offered by Jesus here is no less than the presence of God in people. This is a a, a generations-old cross-cultural desire of humanity is to walk with God, to have the presence of God in us, to know God, to be comforted by God, to have our questions answered, to be safe. And what Jesus is telling us is that through faith in him, we can have the spirit of that very God living in us. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is a gift that is exclusive to those who love his word. It's like a marriage. You cannot be connected to God without him. This gift is part of his covenant with his people and has been given to us to nurture and to deepen this relationship. The Holy Spirit is here to increase our intimacy with Jesus, therefore our love for him, his Father, and his word. And then when we love him that way, as a church in the power of his spirit, we'll obey his commands together. And we'll be encouraged to obey his commands together. And we'll be encouraged to love him more. And the world then, the world that rejects him, will see a unique, a distinctive, community of people, a unique and distinctive expression of what it means to be human, of what it means to be a neighbor, of what it means to be an engineer, of what it means to be an artist, or whatever you do. The world will see that unique expression, and they will have one question. Why? And that's when we get to introduce them to Jesus. And that's the reason that we have the Spirit in us. It's my prayer that you will be open to a new and a deeper intimacy and understanding of the role of the Spirit in our lives as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace toward us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who you promise is dwelling 
in the hearts and minds of Christians. Lord, we pray for more and more and deeper transformation in our lives that you would, as you promised, bring to our memories, bring to our recollection what it means to follow you and that you would help us to be obedient to your commands. And Lord, when we're not, we pray that you would help us to repent quickly, to return to you, to ask for help, and to trust you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.